But then as I reflected upon it, that if I had had to choose a suitable passage of Scripture, couldn't find a better passage than this. And I believe there may be a certain providence of God so that even when this series was planned months ago, God in his providence saw that we were here this morning. That's how it has come home to me. But if ever a prayer needed to be understood in its context, this is one. So let's meet the prophet. His name is Habakkuk. We know very little about him, except his name, and that he lived in Judah. And in verse 1 of chapter 1, he received an oracle from God. Now that is a typical expression used for the prophets. The actual word conveys the sense of carrying something. It has an ominous feel about it. And Habakkuk was a man with a burden. If you looked upon him at that particular moment, there wouldn't have been a smile on his face. He was burdened. He was troubled at what was happening in the world. He didn't feel he had any control over it, just as you and I feel this morning. So let's try and put him in his context. Well, the prophecy is usually dated at the close of the 7th century BC, shortly after the Battle of Carchemish, which was 605 BC. What had happened was Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, routed the Egyptians on the fords of the Euphrates. Euphrates has been in the news this morning. He assumed control of the region and he marched then to subjugate Judah. So Babylon was now the major power of the day. Just as today you could say, where is the major power? You wouldn't have any doubt in saying the major power today. If you had lived when Habakkuk lived, you would have said it's Babylon. They took their name from the city of Babylon that is just 80 miles south of modern Baghdad. Iraq. Habakkuk was a prophet then to Judah towards the end of the reign of King Josiah and the beginning of Jehoiakim's reign. There were other prophets at the time. There was Jeremiah and Zephaniah in Judah and there was Daniel in Babylon. The northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered by Assyria just as Nahum had said it would. And now the southern kingdom, to which Habakkuk belonged, was threatened by the Babylonians' might. And so Habakkuk was worried. His first concern was the state of his own people. Remember, the Jews had this unique relationship to God. But their national life was a disgrace and dishonouring to God. Look at chapter 1 and verses 3 and 4. He says all kinds of social wrongs marked his nation. There was destruction, there was violence, there was strife, there was contention, law and justice weren't administered properly. There was perverted justice. And his second concern was the great power that was looming large on the horizon, Babylon. Why did God allow it to happen? And when it did happen, why did he allow it to continue? And these intellectual difficulties posed a challenge to Habakkuk's faith and trust in God. And so he asked two questions in the first part of his prophecy. The first is this. 
why aren't God's people, the Jews, the people of Judah, punished for their wrongdoing? I can find myself asking questions about the church in a not dissimilar fashion. How can the church as a whole compromise on basic Christian truths? How can it admit to its leadership some who deny its various fundamentals? How can the church go along with contemporary moral ethics that are contrary to the scriptures? Why does God allow it? God's answer to Habakkuk took him by surprise. God says, the Babylonians are going to be my instrument to punish my people. Verse 6 of chapter 1, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth. God sometimes chooses to discipline his own people through those who neither believe in him nor acknowledge him. Babylon. But this prompted another question from Habakkuk. His second question, how can a just God use wicked Babylonians to punish his people who, if you try and judge, are at least better than the Babylonians are in their conduct? God's answer took Habakkuk again by surprise. In God's time, Babylon will also be judged and God will reward the faith of those who trust in him in spite of everything that appears to be happening. And as you look in chapter 2, I'll just glance through it with you. The Babylonians, verse 7, will themselves become victims. Verse 8, they will be plundered. Verse 13, they will exhaust themselves for things that won't last. Verse 16, they'll be filled with shame. And remember, because we can look back, that all happened in 539 BC when Darius, king of the Medes, overcame the Babylonians. Babylon fell. It was left a heap of ruins. Now this judgment might seem slow to come, but look at verse 3 of chapter 2. Perhaps one of the most important verses in the book. For the revelation, that is what God has told Habakkuk, awaits an appointed time. God has fixed the date. It speaks of the end, that is God's final purpose, and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Therefore, what is the prophet to do? Look at verse 4. See, he, that is Babylon, is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Now, Habakkuk could hardly take this in. Could God be serious? I almost hear John McEnroe at Wimbledon saying, can you be serious? I mean, that was our Habakkuk. How can God really mean this? God says, I mean it so much, Habakkuk, I want you to write it down. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. 
for the revelation awaits its appointed time. Habakkuk, you're to rest upon what I say, you're to wait for it, and you're to tell all God's people to do the same. Can I just say in passing, although it's more than just in passing, that what struck me as I read through this book several times, as you would if you're preparing to share it with others, that it wasn't only this answer that God gave Habakkuk, but in different ways God's character came before him. And it was a reminder to me that faith rests upon God's character. Let me just illustrate what I mean. In verse 12 of chapter 1 and elsewhere, God is everlasting. Second, God knows everything, knows all about the Babylonians, knows all about their leaders and about the motives of the rulers of the nations. Thirdly, God is holy, chapter 1 and verse 2. God is sovereign, the sovereign Lord is my strength, we read in chapter 3. God's dependability, chapter 1 and verse 12, he's the rock of his people. A rock is a place of security. You can run to a rock and be secure. And God is the refuge of his people. And then 6, chapter 3 and verse 2, God's wrath. God's wrath is his inevitable reaction against sin. There are dreadful things happening in every part of the world, in our own country. And lots of people think that no one takes any notice. God does take notice. And God stores up his wrath, which is a righteous holy, good wrath against all sin. No one will escape that judgment. There's only one way of escape. The atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, the propitiation for our sins, he turned away God's wrath by bearing our sin on himself. And so, the seventh characteristic of God that is mentioned is God's mercy, chapter 3 and verse 2. In wrath remember mercy my only ground of approach to God as a sinner is the mercy of God. That mercy was seen in the cross. There is more mercy in Jesus Christ than there is sin in me. What then is the right response to this revelation of God of himself and of his purpose? Well, look at chapter 3 and verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time make them known. In wrath remember mercy. Habakkuk's fear was that Judah would be destroyed. He was worried about it. And I sometimes worry about the church and her preservation. And so he prays in effect for her renewal. Some would translate it as revival. Habakkuk says, I remember, I've heard what you've done in the past. And it's very good to pray in the light of what we've known God has done in the past. But having listened to God, Habakkuk now prays the prayer that we're concerned with in verse 16. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. What is he doing? 
Well, God had said to him, the righteous will live by faith. That is, those who are in a right relationship with me will live by their faith. Habakkuk, you're in a right relationship with me? Live by faith. Know that whatever is happening in the world, however violent it may be, how devastating, how cruel, how horrible, the depths of man's inhumanity to man, I have a purpose, Habakkuk, and it will be revealed and it will all come to an end. And if you think about that, that vision given to Habakkuk is really the vision that the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ gives to us. And we may depend upon it because God is our rock, he's dependable. And what is that vision? Well, it's this, that the best things that God promises us are in the future. When we do not understand what is happening in the world and yet we're confident of God's final purposes, The right attitude before God in prayer is to say, I will wait patiently for the Lord. Now, I confess that's not easy, and it requires strength to wait. And Habakkuk's prayer is one of submission. I found my thoughts going to what the writer of the Hebrews says about the Lord Jesus. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus was suffering agony of soul as he thought of bearing my sin and yours on the cross that we might be put right with God. And he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. And yet he prayed, your will be done. And God sent an angel and strengthened him. And the writer of Hebrews says he was heard because of his reverent submission. The Lord Jesus submitted himself to his Father, knowing that the end of it all was going to be right and good. And you know, it's a wonderful thing in a world that is in chaos, for it is, no one knows where we'll be next week or even tomorrow night to be able to say, all must be well because God is working out his purposes. It is therefore a prayer of confidence. And as you exercise confidence in God, you soon have a testimony. Look at verse 19. Having prayed this prayer, Habakkuk says, the sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Now that's remarkable. One moment he's trembling, he's afraid, and now having exercised faith in God, I will wait for the Lord. He's recovered, as it were, a sense of youth. What has he discovered? Well, he's discovered that you can be more than conqueror through him who loves you if you know that all things work together for good to those who love God. And as Habakkuk prayed, he found joy. I find quite remarkable the verses of 17 and 18 of chapter 3. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, 
Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Saviour. I wonder if I can put that into the context of the 23rd of March, 2003. Though as a result of the world situation, the economy fails, the Chancellor's estimates prove deficient, my savements, my investments, my pension goes down the drain, and the world's prospects are bleak, and war looms larger and larger, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, God my Saviour. Now, can you honestly say that? That's what Habakkuk said. So I want to end by attempting two applications. I want to apply it first of all to us personally. You see, there are things that you and I do not readily understand in God's dealings with us. I'm thinking of trials. I'm thinking of physical suffering. I'm thinking of disappointments. And when these things come, it's right to turn to God's promises. But God's promises do not always have an immediate fulfilment. Many of them have a much more future application. And what Habakkuk teaches us to do is to pour out our hearts to God, just to tell him how it is. Tell him our perplexity. And to remember his promises. And I do not state glibly Romans 8.28 All things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Wait for God. Wait for God. Wait for God. In my travels a few years ago, I met a young man who was very unsettled where he was. And humanly speaking, he had every reason to want to find a way of escape. And I was just there for the weekend, and uh, I was concerned that he was going to push the wrong doors. And I said to him, Wait. I said, wait for God. I said, if you are to move, let it be God's doing and not yours. Can't you tell you how thrilled I was a few months ago to hear from him without him having anything to do with that, without pushing any doors. God had opened just the door he had longed for. Wait. Do you remember what Abraham and Sarah did? when they didn't wait. Sarah gave Abraham to her servant girl, Hagar. Ishmael was born. And so many of the conflicts in our world are because of what happened then. You and I are living with them. If we don't wait for God, we make a mess of it and of our lives. Secondly, the corporate application there are three things the Bible tells me to wait for. They all seem quite difficult to define. First of all, we wait for the final judgment. I don't know the truth about Saddam Hussein. 
I don't know the truth about President Bush or Tony Blair's motives. But God does. And there is to be a final judgment. The reason it's called final is because it will be the last and it will be decisive. And it will be like a flood, the Bible says. The foundations of men and women's lives will be tested. It will be the day of God's wrath. And if you don't take that seriously, because I'm aware that you may say, oh, that's just what preachers, the Bible says. Let me remind you that the first truth to be set at a discount in the world is in the Garden of Eden, when Satan tried to deny the doctrine of the wrath of God resulting in death. Has God said that you will die? God's judgment should bring us a sense of awe. Habakkuk says, I heard, my heart pounded, my lips quivered, decay crept into my bones, my legs trembled. It will be fearful. And yet how right it is that God should judge the world. Secondly, we wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We wait for God's Son from heaven. We wait for the glorious appearing of our Lord and Saviour. The Lord Jesus said, when things like this happen, lift up your heads, your redemption draws near. His coming will be personal, it will be visible, it will be bodily, it will be sudden, and it will be glorious. What began at his first coming will be completed at his second. And we await for the glories of that day. It is our hope, because the Lord Jesus is our hope. And thirdly, we wait for the revelation of his eternal kingdom. There will be the judgment of the living and the dead, the bestowal of rewards for those who have been faithful and waiting expectantly. But for these things we must wait humbly, because we do not know the time. Before our Saviour came the first time, people were saying, when will the Messiah come? And they had to wait patiently. So must we. What is said in verses 2 and, of chapter 2 and verse 3 is what we must say. The revelation, our Lord's coming, the judgment, awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. So what does this prayer of Habakkuk say to us? 23rd of March, 2003. Well, our waiting is seen in our praying. Our waiting is seen in our praying. Do you remember how the New Testament ends? Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's examine ourselves then as we close. I want to ask you, are we ready for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ? I wouldn't dare stand up here and speak to you if I wasn't confident of his return. And are we waiting for it? Do we pray for it? 
I read a few years ago the diary of Andrew Bonner and one day he wrote in his diary, I notice that I do not pray in secret for Christ's coming as I ought. Do you pray in secret for the Saviour's coming? Do you? Do you belong to God's true people? Not through merit of your own, not because you come to church, not even because you've been baptised, but do you know you belong to God's kingdom because you belong to Jesus Christ, He's your Saviour, your Lord, you've trusted him. And if so, are you concerned for the state of the church? Do you pray that God may yet revive her? As you and I read our newspapers, watch the television, do we have our glorious hope in view? And are we ready to give an answer to anyone who asks us for the hope that we have? I wouldn't give glib answers to people. But I do have the confidence that God is working out his purposes for his eternal kingdom. I couldn't find a, a big empty book. I had someone, one somewhere, but I, I just picked up this little notebook. It hasn't got anything written in it. And if you imagine that this book is the remainder of human history, I know what happened yesterday, and at the end of the day I may hear on the news what has happened today, but here's human history until the end. And I don't know what's going to be on any one of these pages, but the lovely thing is, I do know what's going to be on the back page. Jesus Christ is to return. And God's eternal kingdom will be revealed. And as Habakkuk says in this book, the knowledge of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. Are you ready? Let us be ready and ready to give an answer for the hope that is in us. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we thank you that at the end of the Bible there is the book of Revelation. And it tells us how everything is going to end. And we thank you for that glorious assurance of our Saviour's return and his glorious revelation and gathering together of his people. Our Heavenly Father, we want to ask this morning that not one of us may be without faith in him. Please show us our need of the salvation he came to bring through his death upon the cross in the place of sinners. And then fill us with strength to live as good citizens of this world, knowing that our real citizenship is in heaven, from whence we look for our Saviour. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.